everybody grieves differently. Families, remember about your first three sentences. After that, they're zoned out. But we'll ask for me, you know, is it okay if I give you a hug? Um, let them know also that, you know, while their loved one is in our care, we're going to, you know, grant them the greatest respect and dignity. Hey, friends, welcome to our special edition podcast called Faith at Work. I'm your host, Jen Kelly, joined by my friend and fellow pastor, Corey Shoemate. Hey, friends. We get the joy of bringing you conversations that are all about integrating faith and work and why, as you know, every job matters. We're interviewing Christ followers from a variety of work backgrounds to help stir our imaginations to give us new insights and practical ways to think about how we live out our faith at work. Well, howdy, Pastor Corey here. Guys, we are uh, joined by a special guest today. Many of us in the church world often think about what happens to our soul after we die. And today we're going to have a guest who thinks a lot about what happens to our bodies right after we die. We are joined today by Steve Laker. Steve is a deputy coroner for the Kane County Coroner's Office. Before that, he worked for the Streamwood Fire Department for 26 and a half years. He started as a firefighter paramedic and retired as a lieutenant paramedic. Steve's a friend of mine who attends the Streamwood campus, and he's been a part of Christ Community for about a decade now. And we have got a fantastic interview lined up for you guys. I'm so excited for you to hear this one. So without further ado, let's dive in. All right, Steve, thanks so much for being here with us. Thank you for inviting me. All right. Hey, friend, so to, to kick us off here, tell us what in the world is a coroner? I'm guessing most people maybe have some vague notion of what that is, dead people, but what is a coroner? Actually, uh, the coroner is a elected position in actually 101 counties in the state of Illinois. The city in Cook County is the only one that has a medical examiner, but I am a deputy coroner, which is an appointed position. Uh, we work under the coroner at his discretion, and pretty much uh, he handles all the budget and the political stuff. We handle everything else related to the deceased. Interesting. Hmm. So the first thing, right, everybody, when they think of a coroner, I think TV shows come to your mind, right? At least it does for me. So how has Hollywood in particular misrepresented your job as a coroner? Well, uh, they solve everything in one hour. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> you don't do that? No. Okay. No. Ours takes quite a bit longer. Actually, a uh, full investigation can take anywhere from 14 to 16 weeks and wow. maybe even longer, depending on what we have to do. Um, the, the coroner's office is responsible for the investigation of not only routine deaths, like if somebody's on hospice, mm-hmm. we record all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But also, if it's an unusual death or something, maybe a doctor's not available, they're out of the country for a couple of weeks doing, uh, I don't know, a humanitarian aid or just on vacation, death certificates have to be signed in a timely manner hmm. by state law. So if not, we have to make sure we get those signed. But as far as my job, um, what we do is we take, as soon as a phone call comes into the office, if it's during the daytime, the administration will forward it to us, the administrative secretaries. If not, after uh, 5 o'clock, we pick it up ourselves. Okay. We're in the office 24-7 in King hmm. County. Hmm. Wow. Um, there's usually one to two deputies on all the time. Hmm. And what we'll do is we'll take that information. It could be coming from the police department, be coming from fire department, nursing home, hospital. 
We even get sometimes calls from funeral homes where they've said, yeah, so-and-so called me, said their husband died or, or their spouse died. Have they called you guys yet? Mm. Nope. So then we contact the family and say, this is the proper way you have to do it. Mm. But once we get that phone call, we start looking at all the information. If it's the police and fire department, they kind of let us know what the scenario is out there. Mm. And if it's determined based on our uh, protocols, then we will actually respond out to the scene and start a full investigation. Part of that involves going, not only talking and interviewing family members as to what happened, mm -hmm. but we photograph the scene along with the police department. Oh, wow. And then we'll also take and um, look through personal possessions. You know, we, we're looking for the cause of death. Right. And part of that is we're looking for medications. We're looking for anything out of unusual. The police look at everything criminally, we look at stuff from a medical point of view. Okay. We may, you know, prescriptions. Uh, we may look at, you know, they are discharged from the hospital. And we'll take some of that information. We'll take the medications back with us to destroy. Hmm. After we have um, inventoried them, documented it, and we hang on to those until the case is done, and then we will hmm. get rid of them. Unfortunately, we're finding a lot of times that, okay, they have, you know, Medications were issued three years ago, and they're still full bottle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Maybe they weren't compliant with. Oh, interesting. You know. Yeah. But then we'll reach out to the doctors off of those medications after we get back to the office, and we will subpoena medical records. We'll go to the pharmacies. Hmm. You know, we'll subpoena those from pharmacies also. But out on scene, we're taking pretty much and looking at anything that could have possibly caused the death. Hmm. Okay. If it's been a traumatic kind of thing, uh, could be an industrial accident, we're looking at the machines. Hmm. We also are responsible for contacting the uh, necessary official government entities, I guess. Um, let's say somebody has been hit by a train, you know, with the, you know, what train tracks is it? Who's in charge of it? Is it a Metra? Is it... You know, one of the freight train companies, we interact with them. Is it the police department? If it's an airplane crash, we interact with the FAA. Hmm. If it's uh, somebody who's been injured at work, Illinois Department of Labor comes in. Wow. Or OSHA. <laughs> and we interact with all of them very closely because they want our information. And there's sometimes that uh, employers will talk with us more than they will, let's say, OSHA, because yeah. they think OSHA's coming in just uh, – hmm. Give them a fine or something. Mm. But our main job, though, is to try and find out what the cause of death is. Mm. Okay. And once we are on the scene, we're investigating all this, looking, photographing. Um, then we turn around, and at some point, we'll end up taking possession of, of the deceased mm. back to our office. And part of the thing, when, we, when I say take them back to our office, um, we have a morgue. And the autopsy suite at our office, we all, you know, have mm -hmm. a cooler that helps reduce the temperature of the bodies mm -hmm. so that we can do the autopsies. Mm -hmm. Also, it helps preserve the, the body in the aspect of until we can turn them over to the care of a funeral home mm -hmm. so they can do what they need to do. Yeah. Sometimes it is long-term. Sometimes we have uh, the deceased that are unclaimed for 30 days, 40 wow. days, and then we have to go through the courts and wow. to get certain things done, you know, depending on what the situation is. So is, it, is it fair to say that whenever anybody dies in Kane County, your office is involved? Yes. Wow. It's, we're either involved as far as investigation or the, the death certificate. Yes. 
actually comes to our office in wow. some way. So, so what we were talking about this before the episode, what, um, what percentage of cases that you get your way somehow involve foul play? Um, in King, in, I should say in the state of Illinois, you have what on a death certificate, you have what's called cause of death, which could be anything medically traumatic, whatever, but then there's manner of death. In the state of Illinois, there's only five manners of death. There's natural, you know, you had a heart attack, you passed away. Mm -hmm. There's accidental, using a car accident, or maybe you overdosed or something to that extent. Mm -hmm. There's a homicide, which somebody intentionally harmed you. Then there's also suicide. Mm -hmm. And then there's undetermined, meaning we can't determine at this point Mm -hmm. With everything out there, right. and like you're talking about on TV, mm-hmm. everything gets solved. No, yeah. it yeah. doesn't. There's a lot of times we have ones that are not determined yet. Mm-hmm. And some of it is cases that we're going back and looking now. We have cold case unit in the okay. coroner's office that they go back and start looking at stuff from years ago. And they try and, wow. with new technology, DNA yeah. and yeah. everything else, we're constantly trying to do something to wow. determine those. But as far as the percentage... Um, I would, it's going to be less than 10%. Less than 10%. Yeah. So you, you are I like said somewhere around that. 10%. Okay, last one. One more follow-up. I'm so curious. I'm so curious right now. Uh, how many autopsies have you done? Um, I believe this year were in excess of 200. And that, it depends on – and some of that is medically reasoned. Some of it mm-hmm. is due to – uh, unusual circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have those exact numbers with me. Yeah. On uh, on an average, we're doing about in the coroner's office. We're investigating or handling the paperwork as far as the deputies mm-hmm. on about thirty six hundred cases a year. Wow. Okay. So based on those numbers alone, right? Yeah. For our general audience population, mm-hmm. if they're anything like me, most people cringe. Right at the thought of being around 300 dead bodies Mm. just even within this year. So what made you become a coroner? Um, Some of that comes back from working in the field of trying to help people. And when I was working for the fire department, I was fortunate enough to know coroner Russell, who also is a strong Christian, by the way. He uh, had... We were talking one time at actually one of our kids' uh, robotic tournaments that they were both in, and he asked, he goes, hey, are you interested in any part-time work? And I'm like, uh, like what? And he told me what, you know, as a part-time deputy. I'm like, well, let me let me think on it. About that same time, because my other side job or part-time job when I was on the fire department was hazardous materials, you know, and I was in the process of humping 600-pound drums out of fields and going into these chemical places and doing that. And I loved it. But I'm like, you know what? I'm getting a little bit older here. Maybe I should do something easier. So I started working there. And then after about four months, he's like, hey, we're looking to put on another full-time position. Are you interested? About that same time, um, at the fire department, I had promised my wife a long time ago that when I felt that uh, I was starting to lose a little bit of a step and also I wasn't happy with what I was doing, that it was time to leave. I wanted to leave under my terms. Mm. And I'm like, you know what? I'm eligible for my pension. Yeah, yeah. So we talked and prayed on it. 
And we also, uh, you know, I talked to a couple of other close friends of mine who are strong Christians, and they're like, Steve, everything's lining up for you. This is your opportunity to walk away from the department. You have been, you know, because they knew what my struggles were going on there. Uh, some of it was personality. Some of it was, you know, you know, being a Christian also is kind of hard in government service sometimes. Mm-hmm. But um, so the opportunity came, so I'm like, you know what? Yeah, Rob, I'll take that job. Hmm. <laughs> and he's like, okay, when can you start? Wow. I'm like, well, I, you know, I have to give so much time. So I left. The, I walked out of the station, so to speak, my retirement walk out. They walk you out as far as uh, uh, the fire departments. A lot of times we'll set tones off, this is your last day, da-da-da. Mm. You know, in the morning at 8 o'clock, you walk out, they give you a flag, all the personnel are lined up in a formation, and you shake hands with them and you walk out. Mm. Well, I left on a Friday and started on the coroner's office on Monday. Oh, my time. goodness. So, <laughs> you know. <laughs> How many years? Seven years ago? Seven right? years ago, yeah. So in the past seven years, what's been the most difficult part of your job? For me, the hardest thing is, uh, I guess, has been dealing with, uh, like the infants, you know, when you have, yeah. you know, children die. Yeah. But it also, um, by finding those answers for families, it's helped them in the long run. And the reason I say that is we've had some cases where we've had young men or teenagers die and come find out it wasn't drugs. It wasn't. is a medical condition that nobody knew about in their family. Mm. But now they have other kids. So we tell them what this medical condition is. Right. Our pathologist will and say, this, you need to have your other children checked out by a doctor, or this is, you know, to rule this out. That way we don't have this happening to your yeah. family. Yeah. So, hmm. but I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of uh, sections of the coroner's office as far as the worst part, you know, and some of it is when we have to you know, recover bodies that maybe have been in, you know, the fire department helps us tremendously. They'll recover like a body out of the water Mm -hmm. and then we'll bring it back to our facility. Mm. Or the body has not been found for two or three weeks in a house, 90 degrees. Wow. Um, Or it's been out in the field now for two or three years. Now we're just finding bones. You know, Mm -hmm. those are ones that are hard, but the biggest thing I think is uh, actually trying to personally deal with the death as far as the especially children because mm, being a imagine. parent it's hard yeah and I can relate to to losing a child because I've lost one of my own but it's also one of those ones that not every parent or everybody deals with it differently we see f- the families in anger. Mm. We see the families, you know, in crisis as far as just grieving. See, you know, you try and talk to families sometimes, and they're you can just see that they're they're go- they're out of touch with what's going on right now. And then we're like, okay, we'll come back to them. Right, there's some shock. Yeah, mm-hmm. we'll circle back around yeah. and we'll talk to them maybe in a couple of days. Right, right. So. All right, Steve, what's fascinating about your story is that you just haven't been working for, you know, 30 years in the same line of work. You've been working in the same community in a very similar line of works, either working as a first responder or 
closely with first responders. And there's a lot of people who are listening right now, part of our church, who are maybe decades into you know their job, uh, or maybe they're just starting. But uh, something I think would be really good to get at is what happens when you're in a place and in a community investing in that place for for decades. What are you able to enjoy as the fruit of simply staying there, staying in one place for a long time? Well, I'd say the biggest thing is um, by getting to know your community, you know the weaknesses, not only of where you're working at, but also all the strengths. Hmm. Like on the fire department, one of the things that I found out real quick was that they didn't have a strong support system for anybody who was going through. You know, you had your... uh, um, equal Opportunity uh, Commission. Yeah, if somebody's having a problem, they had uh, uh, another procedure, but nobody really trusted that. Mm-hmm. One of the things I was able to do after working there and talking with my chief in depth, we launched a chaplain program. Mm. And it was one of those ones, we were one of the first ones in the area to launch a, cha- a chaplain program where we actually gave him a pager. He had a uniform. He would respond out to the scenes if we had a death from a car accident or if we needed something. But he also, if anybody was having problems, he had his own consultation service. But he would take and talk with somebody for, I think it was like three or five sessions. And then if, at that point, he realized that you know this was more than what is going to be a long-term thing, then he would recommend that they... Uh, go through the, I think it was an EAP is what they called it. Mm -hmm. Um, But he would then recommend that they, he didn't want them to come to him. He wanted them to be covered Uh by the the village. But the biggest thing was by having the chaplain program is guys started buying into it. Mm -hmm. And also females, the secretaries and other people, and then other departments started also, hey, how did you get this set up? Mm. So you had some sway in in because of your time there. Right, and then the police department started. Hmm. But the other thing, too, is being involved in the community. Like our fire department, we have a guns and hoses program. <laughs> it is a charity program. We'd yes. go out, the cops will play the firefighters. <laughs> the cops are fast. The firefighters aren't that fast. But is, the is, fire, this, is this a, a sports game? It's or a what is basketball it? game. Basketball. Every okay. year, it's usually in April. I think the fire department's leading right now, but uh, <laughs> but what was we would get uh, as fire department members and police officers, they would go out and they would talk to businesses in the community and they mm. would donate stuff. And then we would yeah. raffle that stuff off. Mm. I mean, I can't remember right now uh, how much it was, but I think it's upwards of $100,000 wow. worth of prizes that we have raffled off in the time that I was there. You got to be a part of that. Oh, yeah. I played basketball and I ain't a basketball player. Mm-hmm. I'm, <laughs> I'm short, stocky, and <laughs> basketball players – for the fire department, fill a lot of space. Some of them are tall, but a lot of us fill space. So the cops have to try and get around us. And that was the – but it was one of those ones that we built that you know, community effort. We got that done. Cool. Yeah, your dedication and trust that you've been able to establish in Streamwood yeah. is just phenomenal. Um, but I want to flip that around then, right? Because you probably then at the same time know generations of families or just people that you have served – so what have you learned about people in general as a firefighter or as a coroner? Um, I guess the biggest thing is that everybody grieves differently. Hmm. Um, and everybody's emotions are high depending on if it's a death or if somebody's injured. You know, there's times that on the fire department we've been, de- we've been taking care of a loved one 
and a family member has went off on us. <laughs> Either started yelling at us, maybe they tried to attack us. Wow. Why? It's one of those ones that mm-hmm. you know we look at as they're emotionally having problems dealing with what's going on. Wow. Okay. Uh, and that's not you know that they're psychological or anything, but more just that it's emotion. Yeah. When your emotions are on your sleeve, you say and do stuff that you regret later sometimes. Mm. And one of the things you know they'll do that. Uh, other times during grieving, we've had families just like I said earlier, just close up. They they can't think. I was told uh, one of our my trainer for the coroner's office. She says usually families remember about your first three sentences. After that, they're zoned out. Wow. So in that first three sentences, you got to establish your rapport, but also let them know that you will be getting back to them. Mm. That way, they remember that. That's so good. That's, that takes a lot of compassion and sort of like intuitiveness and being present with the person to read that situation. That's really good, uh, Steve. I remember a time at church uh, since you serve in just about every way at the Streamwood campus. You're involved in uh, in many ways, but kids' world is really close to your heart, and. I remember one Sunday I uh, came up to you and you were serving at our check-in station and I said, Steve, how you doing? Uh, you know, happy Sunday. Good to see you here. How, how you doing? And, and you're like, I'm just okay. Like you're very, very honest. I said, what's going on? And you said, I had a tough night. I had a tough night on the job because you work uh, kind of shift work overnight. So, you know, you're just coming off of a shift. I don't think you'd gotten any sleep. <laughs> you'd just c- come into church. And I said, what happened? And you said, uh, there was this case that I was on where a, a mom uh, woke up and her infant was dead next to her. And she had uh, apparently uh, rolled over and accidentally suffocated uh, her infant. Just, just horrible. And that's the case you got. And a couple hours later, you're you're in our church serving, and I'm thinking most people would would have taken the day off yeah, there. They, they would be at home right now, um, and and yet here you are at church. So I want to know, after a night like that, what made you come to church that day? Um, the biggest thing is that coming to church recharges me in the aspect of I feel the love of not only Christ at church, but I also feel those around me caring for me. This, you know, just the insight that you saw that, okay, something's going on here. I had other people come up to me and say, are you okay today? Because they know me. And is one of those ones that I felt I needed to be there to get that support. But also goes back also to my personality of I'm an introvert by nature and Having people come up to me is kind of unusual for me, but I also know that I need the support. Mm-hmm. And my, you know, Sandy, my wife keeps telling me, Steve, you got people who support you. Give them the chance mm-hmm. to support you. That's good. And that's one of the things I get out of out of going to church. I see the love of everybody there. I see Christ working through everybody. But on on days like that, I have to come in. But also, it's one of those ones I have an obligation. You know, I know I could have said, oh, you know, I can't make it today, and and it would have been covered. But I also know that deep in my heart, God told me, you be there. You're struggling. You be there. I'll surround you with love. I'll surround you with people who care about you. And I need you as much as you need them. Mm-hmm. So, you yeah. know, it's, it's kind of one of those ones that, uh, yeah. <laughs> 
you know, as you talk about your your faith informing your job so often in my conversations with you at, at church. Um, I want to know how how you have found avenues to share Jesus, to be vocal about Jesus in your line of work. Um, some of the ways that I do it is just showing them that I care. Um, that these families are not just a number. Hmm. Um, that we care about them. I care about them. I want to get answers for you. And it could be something simple as, like I said, you have to read people. But we'll ask, you know, is it okay if I give you a hug? Um, let them know also that, you know, while their loved one is in our care, we're going to, you know, grant them the greatest respect and dignity, hmm. you know. And most people know that we're going to do that, but by saying it, it just reinforces but as far as also spreading, um, you know, once I can read the people a little bit more, I let them know, you know, person, my thoughts and prayers are with you, I'll tell them. That's good. And it, and, and it is. You know, there's a lot of times uh, in my desk at, at work, I have a small service worker's uh, Bible that somebody gave me a long time ago. Hmm. It's got it's dog-eared and it's got little uh, red markers for... Areas that I struggle in, so, you know, and then blue markers in it for areas of peace that I know. Mm. And depending on what kind of case I have, I'll look and see, okay. Uh, an example is, that I look at it is, like, if you have somebody who has hurt somebody, that kind of irritates me. So I'll look in there, okay, well, I'm not angry, but um, anger is, you know, irritation maybe is a little bit of anger. So, mm -hmm. okay, what scripture say? And I'll look at that scripture and I'll pray on it myself when yeah. I get back and I have time. Or if I'm, it's kind of one of those ones I've had a, a good case in the aspect of I've resolved something. A family is so thankful. Hmm. And that's one of the biggest things is being able to actually talk with families and just listen to them. Hmm. A lot of times, especially when, when you have some of the elderly who have been married for 40, 50, 60 years and they pass, they have loved ones pass away, they want somebody to talk to. They have their families there. But talking to an outside individual makes a big difference. Yeah. So No, that's good. You hit on something um, a little bit earlier, and I, I just can't help but think about all of our listeners right now who are in shift work. So many different vocations uh, across the spectrum where it's difficult, right? Shift work is hard on the body. It's hard on the mind. So we're curious, what do you do to keep focused on Jesus Throughout the day, when you're facing constant changes in your schedule, or maybe you're on a night shift, or whatever it might be, how what what do your spiritual disciplines or rhythms look like? Um, yeah, I I am on shift. I work uh, nine p.m. to nine a.m. That's my almost permanent schedule for the last two and a half years. Wow. Actually, closer to that now, but uh, a little bit longer. But it's one of those ones that what I focus on during that time is again. I on my own I'll listen to Christian music. You know, I'll have an earbud in while I'm typing my report. Mm -hmm. Especially if it's a difficult report, mm -hmm. oh, I have it good. going. Mm -hmm. <laughs> wow. The more I listen like that, the better off I am. Um listen to the sermons, you know. Hmm. I can listen to that online, you know, and again, in my ear, it's right. that constant reinforcement. Mm -hmm. But also during shift work, taking the time to be thankful. You know, you eat during your shift time. Take that, you know, if you have that half an hour for, for your dinner or for your lunch, whatever shift you're working, while you're eating, 
Say your prayer. Be thankful. Just because you're by yourself eating or if you're mm-hmm. with a group, there's nothing that says you can't say a prayer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But because like that, that also lets others around you know what you're doing. Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. And if they want to join in, that's great. Yeah. I've never been one to be real strong as far as quoting scripture. Mm-hmm. But I've other people say, "What are you doing? I'm praying for my food." Hmm. You're what? Yeah, and then that gives an opportunity for me to yes. possibly talk to them about yes. Christ. Yeah, yes. that's great. But also setting the example for them, trying not to get upset, trying not to. Or if I do get upset with somebody, I'm sorry. I apologize. Hmm. You know, because everybody depends on what's going on that day. Can snap at somebody, whether it be your loved one, whether it be. Unfortunately, children sometimes will snap our own kids, but also at coworkers. Hmm. Come back and apologize. Hmm. Let them know that, hey, I'm sorry, that's not the way I'm supposed to act, and please accept my apology. Yeah, that's how. That's super helpful. Um, I, there's another question too that I'm I'm very very curious about because you deal with so much. I mean, death, trauma. You're it's incredibly stressful. All the intra agencies that you might work with. How do you experience joy as a coroner? Um, one of those ways of experience joy is, like I said, is finding answers for families. One of the things that uh, when I first started, I had a case in uh, one of the local areas that a mother had passed away. Unfortunately, her and her husband had been divorced for a few years. He lived in another state out of contact with mom, but they had a child. I was able to draw upon my experiences of, again, being trained properly, but also um, finding out that that they were divorced, I was able to track down the father in another state. Wow. And I touch base with him and say, you know, of course, it's kind of strange you get this phone call from the corner, you know, but I ended up going through the courts to find out where that paycheck came from for child support, track back to that company. And then from that company, I was able to, they said, yeah, he still works for us. He's in such and such. Can you get a message to him to please call me? And he did about an hour and a half later. I was able to explain to him what what had happened briefly because I you know there's certain information I can't reveal right. to him, but that and his biggest question was, where's my child? Hmm. Oh. And I'm like, he's in this, you know state custody right now. And he, he's like, oh boy. And I'm like, I got a name for you. I have a you know the case manager. Here's a phone number. Two days later, he walked into the office with the child, with a big smile on his face, pretty much in tears, saying, "Thank you." My goodness. And it was one of those ones that you know stuff like that that makes me happy when I think back about that kind of stuff, or. Um, us identifying, say we have somebody maybe who um, is an unidentified individual that's passed away, but through our investigative means, as far as fingerprinting with the police department, uh, maybe facial reconstruction if we have to call in somebody to do that, or DNA testing, we're able to bring families back and let them know what's going on. Hmm. So good. Wow. I think I remember your wife, Sandy, telling us that story. And is it true that um, that that child uh, came next time they were in town, came to come find you again yes. to, in order to express yes. his gratitude? Yeah. She that, came and she she requested, oh, uh, okay. yeah, little girl requested to uh, come back. She was about 12. Yeah. But she came back and, you know, it's the little hug you get and the, the little picture of, because at the time she didn't know what her dad had gotten remarried. 
And they had another little girl. So now she says, I got a, I got a little sister. Wow. You know, that made her so happy, wow. you know. You got to reunite a family. Your, uh, your time and your compassion, your care and your work, it reminds me of this great quote that I, I've heard. I, I love it. It says, uh, work is love made visible. And when I think of that quote, I think of uh, folks like you, Steve, uh, who make their love known through their work. So I just want to say thank you. Thank you. As we finish up today, uh, what is one uh, final word of encouragement uh, or advice that you can leave our listeners with as they look to implement their faith at work? Um, what I would say is, one, everybody's watching. So live your faith in front of everybody. Let them know you're a Christian. I know on my desk, I got a couple of eagles that have got the uh, you know scripture up on them. I let them know. Uh, I let them know that, yeah, I, you know, hey, I got to get out of here. I got to go to church on Sunday. Or, mm. no, I can't work that shift. I have church. Mm. Know that every, you know, that people are watching. Some people are just waiting for the opportunity mm. to be asked. Yeah. Mm. Mm. But also, you know, not only to go to church maybe, but they're waiting to ask you, what is it that you do? Why are you always in that upbeat? Or why are you able to go through all these tough times? and not have it affect you. Well, it does affect us. But it all, but we also know that as a Christian, we have this underlying support, not only of our fellow Christians around us, but God is there with us in every step. Wow. And it's one of those ones that, that that's what I try to tell people, you know. Yeah. I can, you know, even a bunch of firemen I know, there are these big macho guys, but you take them back to the station after dealing with a with a child infant, they're bawling like the biggest baby. Mm-hmm. And you know what? That's okay. It's okay to be upset. It's okay to question what happened. But make sure you're trying to get the answers. And through that, you know, I, I always look at it from what my, my grandfather used to tell me a long time ago when I first went into the military. We're sitting on a porch swing, pitch black. He goes, what do you see out there? And I said, nothing, Grandpa. He goes, that's the world you're going into. He says, be the light for people. He says, you may not have the answers, but you can guide them to whatever they're looking for. Wow. And at the time, I thought, as an 18-year-old, I thought, Grandpa, you've lost your mind. Mm-hmm. But you know what? I realize now that, no, he was telling me what the truth is, is that there's somebody out there guiding your heart and follow your heart. Mm-hmm. And it's never going to set you wrong as long as you're trying to do the work for God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so good, Steve. This has been so interesting and rewarding and just enriching to be able to sit and have a conversation with you. Thanks for listening, friends, to this week's episode of Faith at Work. Our conversations happen every other week. So in two weeks, you can expect another interview to help you think critically about faith and work intersecting in creative and inspiring ways. Because as you know, every job matters. Also, you can subscribe and leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Email us your suggestions, questions, or ideas. We want to hear from you to workpodcast at ccclife.org. Lastly, tell your friends that their job matters too and invite them to join along in the conversation. We'll talk to you soon.